a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Thomas. This week, we get to talk to Trey Hudson. He is awesome. He wrote this great book called The Meadow Project, Explorations into the South Skinwalker Ranch. It is an awesome book detailing the odd paranormal accounts in the deep south of the United States and how it relates to some odd phenomena that is also found in other locations around the world. Now, Trey is the current director of the Oxford Paranormal Society and the Anomalous Studies and Observations Group. Takes a team out there. He does some really cool investigations. He's got a great background with his military background. Thank you for your service, Trey. And uh, he just does an awesome job with this. Guys, the interview is great. He is fantastic. His book will be linked in the show notes. And now, Trey Hudson. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. You damn right, Trey Hudson. Welcome to the show, man. We're really <laughs> excited to get you on and talk to you about your book, The Meadow. I uh, thanks so much, man. Well, tell my audience a little bit about you that uh, for those that don't know you. Oh well, I'm Trey Hudson. I'm the uh, the director of the Oxford Paranormal Society and also the uh, the leader of a division that we have in the Oxford Paranormal Society called the Anomalous Studies and Observation Group. Uh, my background. Uh, I go way, way back with this stuff. I was a child of the 70s, uh, watching old shows like Project UFO, which was a, uh, a dramatization of the uh, Project Blue Book uh, investigations. It was a show back in the 70s and grew up watching a delightful documentary known as uh, In Search Of with the late, great Leonard Nimoy. So, you know, I was, uh, I was actually weaned on the paranormal, you know, like so many people of my generation as a child of the 70s. Uh, my, my father piqued my interest in this. He, uh, while traveling across the country as a, uh, a contractor who would work out of state, he had heard a, uh, a radio show with the uh, late Brad Steiger and picked up his, uh, one of his books and brought it home. And I read it and was just fascinated. Just, uh, you know, the, the, the hook, the worm was put on the hook, the hook was thrown in the water and I gobbled it up like a, you know, an eager young fish and, and, you know, just love this stuff. So I kind of stayed up with it, you know, was interested in, you know, most of the aspects of the paranormal UFO, uh, back in the seventies, a lot of really neat, uh, Bigfoot docudramas were coming out. Uh, you know, who can forget the, uh, you know, the legend of Boggy Creek, you know, things like that. So I was really immersed in this stuff and I went to a, a university that, uh, has a, a very, broad way of looking at the world. It's a uh, University of West Georgia, one of the few universities that has a humanistic and transpersonal psychology program. So we're very experiential, you know, in the way that we look at how human beings interact with their, uh, with their surroundings, their environment, and other human beings. And I studied under such uh, people like the 
the late uh, Dr. William Roll, Bill Roll, who's a very famous parapsychologist, uh, Chris Anstus, who's a legend in the humanistic psychology movement, Mike Ahrens, who was actually uh, recommended by uh, Abraham Maslow to lead our department, and Don Rice, who's, I think, the current uh, head of the department. So, you know, I studied, you know, studied with these gentlemen and some other, you know, great, great uh, psychologists and you know, professors. And my interest in this stuff never really waned. You know, it, it was always there. Uh, while I was in, in university, I uh, attended the last two years on a U.S. Army scholarship and was uh, eventually branched as an Army intelligence officer in the U.S. Army Reserves. Uh, did a little stint as a private investigator. I was also, like I said, in the Army Reserves and two units there. Uh, unfortunately, an injury ended my uh, military career pretty early, a uh, spine injury. You know, that's just the way things go sometimes. So I decided to uh, go to work for the government as a civilian, you know, not as a soldier. So I've been doing that for the past 31 years, and I've done everything from uh, anti-terrorism, uh, protection of weapons of mass destruction, uh, operation security, intelligence, counterintelligence, uh, just a whole gambit of stuff, some emergency management. I went over to Afghanistan for a while, did some uh, stuff as an operations and anti-terrorism officer over there. Uh, hunted big game in Africa, North America, Eagle Scout, you know, just all of that kind of stuff. So just yeah, what I tell people, I'm just an ordinary guy who's got a chance to do some extraordinary things in my life. Uh, that's, uh, what's, yeah, I was, that's what's so oh. cool about it. I think it's fantastic, man. Um, so thank you for your service, first of all. Uh, and oh. I think that it is important to um, highlight your military career because you do take a very analytical and a very tactical uh, approach to your investigations, which I think is awesome. Uh, you do a wonderful job with it. Your book details that account uh, incredibly well. And we are going to go over some accounts in your book. And uh, it will be linked in the bottom down sure. here in the show notes so people can find it. But again, thank you for your service. I have a high regard for people that choose to uh, join the military and that are brave enough to do that. Uh, and then also, so I think it's interesting to the point that you made about you're just an ordinary guy that can do, has an opportunity to do extraordinary things. Now, we expand on that a little bit because I, there are a lot of people out there with nine to fives that feel like they're not qualified or that they don't deserve or for whatever reason they feel that they're stuck and that nothing extraordinary will happen to them for whatever reason what how how would you uh tell give folks the confidence to do something like you're doing in any area carpe diem you know the latin saying carpe diem seize the day yeah is we can be comfortable in our existence in our day-to-day -day life which is fine that is perfectly okay if that's what people are happy with but there is an incredibly wide, diverse, amazing world out there. And don't be afraid to jump out there and try something new. You know, back in the 70s, there was a little boy at the age of about 12, and he was watching these TV shows like In Search Of, where they would go to strange and mysterious locations. That little boy found a strange and mysterious location and then ended up writing a book about it. It can be done. Yeah. You just got to get off your couch and do it. That's it. And, you know, my motto with that is the, you know, there's two, you've seen that picture where it says like your comfort zone and then it's got an arrow pointing outside of it. It's a circle that says your comfort zone inside of it. And there's an arrow pointing outside of it. And that says where the magic happens that you can't right. be content with just having your, having your life. And that's fine. But for folks that 
feel like they want to do more, I think that that's great advice. And carpe diem, man. Seize the day and go out there and find you a dope-ass paranormal uh, spot to hit, man. I think that's really cool. So uh, oh, what, yeah. what got you started with uh, the writing a book in general? What, what made you want to do that? Well, we had been investigating the, uh, the meadow or this, this region, this area, uh, which, you know, like I said, it was sort of accidental. We just sort of happened to find it by following the folklore and the history. And, and that information's out there for the taking. It's, you, know, you just have to sit down and, you know, roll your sleeves up and do the research. Well, you know, COVID hit. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were, were quarant not quarantined, but, you know, were, were sequestered at home with a lot of extra time on their hands. So I thought, well, this would be a good time to sit down and start going through my field notes. And, you know, while I'm very organized during my investigations, unfortunately, I'm not terribly organized when I bring my notes home. So I had to, you know, dig around in some different files on my computers and find some hard copy notes. And I had this big stack of data you know, and experiences and you know, various readings from instrumentation, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought to myself, this would be a good opportunity to put this in some, sign, some kind of coherent narrative where if somebody was interested in this, you know, maybe they could read it and maybe you know, glean some information out of it. So I sat down and the, uh, the, the way I decided to approach this was an expository type, you know, writing that I'm just basically going to say what happened, you know, in a narrative, like if you and I were sitting down, you know, across the table, drinking some beers, I could say, Hey, Brandon, let me tell you this amazing story. And I would start at step one. Yeah. So that's how I approach writing this thing. And so when I got into about 20,000 words, I'm like, you know, this is kind of starting to look like a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I'm like, well, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's, uh, pull out our sabers bear down and charge ahead and see where it takes us. And before I was, uh, before it was over, I ended up with a, uh, a manuscript mm. and, uh, you know, started fishing it out to different publishers and I was picked up by a flying disc press out of the UK. Yeah. And here we are. That's awesome. So w did you contact Philip directly, Philip Mantle of flying disc press or did, did he find you? Uh, actually, uh, we, Philip and I have a mutual friend and, uh, she, uh, and I have, had corresponded on some stuff. Uh, the great, the cat Hobson, uh, yeah. who does uh, fate radio and, and all of that. And she said, you know, let me give you the, you know, let me give you the, the contact information of Philip Mantle. And, uh, you know, I said, Hey, you know, I'm going to send you this manuscript and you know, are you interested? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I'm interested. And, you know, and then about, you know, a dozen editing hacks and, you know, s s squeezing the, you know, the last bit of coherence out of it. And, polishing it and you know presenting it for the public uh, you know here we are it's so cool it's a great read and like you said it's an awesome story uh so the, the subtitle of that book is the south skinwalker ranch so will you just briefly explain skinwalker ranch to those that don't know and and, and then we can get into why the meadow relates to that sure yeah, skinwalker ranch is a uh, a locale in united county uh, utah it has a, a very long history it's, it's literally a ranch it's a working ranch it has a very, very long history of high strangeness going all the way back to First Nation people. You know, they uh, considered this area where this ranch is as cursed. And the reason it's called Skinwalker Ranch is based on the, uh, the beliefs of the, uh, the Ute tribe as skinwalkers had tainted this particular area. And they, they wouldn't even go onto this area. You know, they considered it, you know, taboo. 
And, uh, you know, as we moved into the 20th century, you had various families that would own this ranch. And back in, I believe, the 90s, stories started coming out about some very strange happenings on this ranch. Uh, you know, it ran the gambit of everything, uh, not just UFOs, which, of course, you know, are reported there, but cryptid beasts, uh, portals, poltergeist activity. So all of the paranormal goodies, you know, that are out there, you can just put all in this giant box called Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. Uh, But Skinwalker Ranch was actually purchased by Robert Bigelow, you know, the famous, uh, you know, entrepreneur uh, owns Bigelow Aerospace and and all kinds of other things. And he set together a a, a team of scientists, uh, uh, former military people, and established an organization called the National Institute for Discovery Science, or NIDS. And he sent the, his uh, his personnel out there to investigate this paranormal hotspot. The downside of it is it's starting to come out now that some of the NIDS uh, activities there were actually contracted through Department of, of Defense. And I'm hearing rumors that it was the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, and contrary to popular belief, and I can tell you this from professional experience if the government wants to keep a secret they can yeah yeah so you know as uh you know as mr bigelow when he's been interviewed he says look i had a contract and i have certain non-disclosure elements of you know this contract and i just can't disclose everything that went on at skinwalker ranch well several years ago he sold it to a uh, salt lake city uh, real estate uh developer named uh, brandon fugel and Mr. Fugel has owned it for the past few years, and uh, he's a little bit more open with some of his research and some of uh, the findings of his team out there at Skinwalker Ranch. But what really made me tie the meadow into Skinwalker Ranch, and when I call it the South Skinwalker Ranch, not in the fact that I think it's cursed by skinwalkers, nor is it a ranch, but in a holistic sense, it has all of the same type of elements of high strangeness that is seen out there in uh, the uh, in Utah in United County, because when I started kind of putting together, you know, my notes and looking at all the different elements of high strangeness, I'm like, yep, that's a skinwalker. Yep, that's yep, that too. Well, doggone it, this is like our Skinwalker Ranch right here in the South. It's so cool, and there's several of those types of locations around the world where anomalous activity happen, usually on ley lines or where particular energy grids cross. People have noticed that, but it's it's got to do, and I love that your your referral to the Skinwalker just simply because of the variety and abundance of phenomena that are found there. It's not just seeing UFOs. It's not just seeing a Bigfoot. You're right. seeing every damn thing you can imagine out there. And then it keeps getting stranger and stranger the more you investigate it. Uh, even down to, and I know we're probably going to talk about it, but the lady walking around out there in, in a skirt uh, in the middle of nowhere. And so I do want to get to that. But um, so what made you, how did you stumble upon this location um, where the meadow is? And I know it's classified, so I know we're not going to talk about its exact location because we don't want a bunch of yahoos out right. there. Right. And I'll go ahead and apologize to your listeners now. I am not going to discuss the exact location because I want to keep the, the, the site as pristine and as volatile as possible. You know, I, I don't want it to be under siege by curiosity seekers like the actual Skinwalker ranches, which, you know, they have to keep a large security force there to keep you know, people from going in there and messing things up. So I'll just go ahead and apologize for that. Now, I'll also say that all of the names in the book, like the Blackwater Nature Preserve, uh, Baskin's Hollow, 
Coal Springs Camp. Those are all fictitious names. Right. They're, you know, a representation of a real place, but they're fictitious. But how did this happen? Uh, quite a few years ago, there was a uh, there was a hobby which still exists called geocaching. You know, it's uh, you hide little boxes somewhere and you put the coordinates on the web and people go out there and find a box, sign a log book and, you know, do stuff like that. And I decided to uh, make it a little bit different because, you know, in my local area, there was a geocaching group, you know, a kind of a confederation and we were doing our best to just outdo one another. So I had run across some folklore of a, a haunted cemetery that a road had been built across an ancient cemetery and the ghosts would come up, uh, you know, from their graves at night because the, the roadway was built over the top of them, you know, like these really, really pissed off spirits. And, yeah, you know, it's like, well, you know, folklore, especially here in the South, you know, we have a rich history of haints and boogers and stuff like that. I thought, well, that's just kind of cool folklore. Why don't I tie it into a geocache? So what I did is I took this locale and I elaborated the backstory and I hid this geocache out in the middle of the Blackwater Nature Preserve. And the only way you could find this geocache is to go to a particular grid coordinate, shine your flashlight around, and you would hit a glint marker on a tree. Mm -hmm. And then you would go to that glint marker, shine your light 360 degrees, find the next one until you came to a particular pattern that uh, denoted the end of the trail. And the uh, geocache was within about 30 feet of that last marker. The trick was there were no glint markers leading you back. Yes, this is the best part. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a big, bold, you know, type warning saying, make sure that you waypoint and mark the coordinates of your automobile because I'm not telling you how to get back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so, so cool. I mean, it sounds like such a fun thing to do, man. Oh, yeah. And it, people loved it. I mean, yeah. it just people would come from all over to do this geocache. And I, you know, I started getting these uh, just rave reviews mm -hmm. and there was one, in, uh, one particular review that uh, kind of captured my interest. And this guy said, you know, we, we went and we did your geocache. And it was a lot of fun. And then we went to the cemetery uh, cause I gave the coordinates to the uh, haunted cemetery too. And he goes, you know, we looked at that and looked at some of the old graves and we were out there at night. And it was kind of cool. And we decided we would just ride around a little bit in that area. Well, they were riding around a little bit and they pulled over and they were exploring some stuff. And uh, this pickup truck pulled pulled up right to where they were in the woods. And this this firearm came out of the window of the pickup truck. Yep. Uh, and what had happened is some of the locals saw one of the geocachers who was you know now just exploring with two headlamps on his head. You know, he had like a white one and a red one or something really weird. <laughs> and they thought it was some kind of, you know, monster, you know, yeah. Yeah, monster, you know, sort of, you know. <laughs> you know, lu luminous eyes, you know, mm -hmm. stalking them in the dark. And they were, they were frightened. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, whoa, whoa, don't shoot, don't shoot. You know, I'm just out here kind of exploring. And they're like, Hey boy, you know, what are you doing out here in the woods? And thought you was you know, a damn we, chupacabra. Yeah. yeah chupacabra. <laughs> thought you were one of them boogers or hates out there, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they started talking and they said, you know, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. But whatever you do, don't go down this particular County road. That's a few miles from here. Because it's really haunted and really bad stuff happened on this road. So don't go. So this guy, you know, puts all of this in his little narrative as he's, you know, writing his review of the cache. And I'm reading and I'm like, okay, he just said not to go to that road. What road do I want to go to? I want to go to that road. That exact same uh, road. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm, you know, I'm that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, several years before I could get somebody to go with me. You know, I just, people's lives were getting in the way of their living. You know, mm -hmm. we know how it goes. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, in 2015, I finally had some uh, friends of mine that accompanied me to uh, you know, to this region, to this area, and we researched this road. Uh, and that was uh, one of our first uh, anomalous happenings. It was in 2016 where things really started kicking off in the meadow. Mm. What were the stories about the road that they said, were there any particular instances that were the local, you know, I know there are probably more of like urban legends around there, rural legends, we should say, because they weren't an urban setting. Yeah. Uh, right. But they, um, what were a couple of them that were, they were trying to warn you off from? Well, they said, they said that there were, uh, you know, ghosts, you know, and there was, you know, people have been murdered on that road and it doesn't feel right. You know, it's just one of those areas that, you know, has a stigma about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I went back and looked in some of the folklore and I couldn't find anything specifically written about this area. But, you know, I thought it's, you know, it's worth checking out because when I did start kind of researching the the, the, the general area, which about the first 25% or one third of the book talks about the history of this area. When you start really delving into it, there's like a lot of weird crap that goes on in this region. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I thought, well, this is definitely worth giving it a shot. You know, if nothing else, it gets me off of my couch and out into the field doing some research. Yeah. Yeah. Get some exercise, have some fun, do something spooky. That's cool. Right. And so you stumbled upon the meadow based on a geocache that you set up based on a review that somebody else said, don't go down this road. So then you follow that trail. It's almost like the synchronicity, like you were, you're destined to find this place on some level. Um, what inspired you to do the geocache in that particular area? Was it just because it was close and there was a cemetery there? Uh, it was just kind of a cool piece of folklore. Yeah. Uh, and I'd been wanting, I've always liked geocaches that are in very remote locations. I think it's uh, challenging. Yeah. Uh, you really have to be on your game as far as navigational skills. And uh, it was something that hadn't been done before. Yeah, it's an adventure. And yeah. but the, the fact that it was there and then that this person doing your geocache stumbled across somebody that told him about this road. And then that led you to that road, which led you to the meadow. It's this cool synchronistic right. type of a thing. Like you were destined to do it. I think it's cool. Right. And the, 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 the meadow, which is uh, about half a mile from a, a campsite that we in, eventually ended up using quite a bit wasn't really the focus of our original uh, investigations. We were investigating the haunted road, which is, you know, several miles away, you know, about 20 miles away from where uh, we originally started camping. And, you know, we thought we were going to have all this activity on this supposed haunted road when the real activity was happening back at the campsite near the meadow. So cool. Yeah. It's kind of like that story of Toad Road. Is that in Pennsylvania or something like that? Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's similar. There's just haunted stretches of road where just weird right. shit happens. Okay, cool. Right. So uh, then how did you discover that the meadow was where the action was? Well, like I said, we uh, our, one of our first investigations, uh, a friend of mine and I decided to go quite a way south and uh, investigate this haunted road. And there's a, uh, a, a backpacking trail called the Possum Trot Trail that traverses the Blackwater Nature Preserve. And we figured we would go out here, uh, you know, and it was uh, it was in January of 2016. We would hike along this haunted road. We would catch the uh, Possum Trot Trail, go around a mountain called Burgers Peak, and then reintersect the road and then hike back to our vehicle. And we would just see what happened. Yeah. I have a good friend named Bob that we left back at base camp to watch our gear. We were able to communicate with uh, radios using a local repeater. 
And uh, my friend Daryl and I, uh, you know, hiked around this peak. And it was the winter time at a high elevation, rainy, cold night. And we heard a quail call, you know, a bob white whistle, you know, like mm, that. Yeah. And we thought, oh, my goodness, this must be something cryptid because bob whites don't live at this elevation in the wintertime. So, you know, we're like, oh, this, this is so cool. You know, this is amazing. And we thought we had really accomplished something, but we were excited. We get back in my Jeep and we're driving, uh, driving north back to our campsite. And we get on the radio, hit the repeater, talk to Bob back at base camp. Bob, you're not going to believe what happened. And he goes, yeah, yeah, right. Wait until I tell you what happened. <laughs> to him so, back there at the campsite. Right. Yeah. You know, so we're, you know, we're, the action doesn't take place back at the base camp. You know, it's always with your field team. Right. So we got there and eagerly told him about our somewhat lame and impotent Bob White story, which turned out to be, you know, just pathetic. And he goes, well, let me tell you what happened to me. He said that he was, you know, at the campsite, uh, you know, had, had the fire going and kind of watching the gear, sitting there drinking coffee was quiet. And he decided he needed to do, you know, what men have to do in campsites when they're remote, when they drink too much coffee. He Go stepped away from the camp and was taking care of the biological friend. bit. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and uh, he's standing there, you know, looking around through the mist and the rain and the moon comes up and he thinks to himself, wow, you know, what great luck. It's starting to clear up. You know, I can see the moon now and the rain is finally breaking. Maybe we'll have a dry weekend. So he's watching this, this big luminous orb uh, in the sky and this orb starts moving sideways hmm. from right to left. Mm-hmm. And he immediately realized, I'm pretty sure the moon doesn't move sideways. Not in my you experience, know. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And so he's watching this thing, and it moves laterally, like I said, from right to left, and stops. And it's hanging there. And in the middle of this luminous orb, he sees a tiny black dot. And this black dot starts growing larger and larger, like the iris of a camera. Yeah until it grows so large that all he has is like a white circle or ring, like a, uh, a, a necklace of diamonds effect during a uh, solar eclipse. Yep. Okay. And it eventually completely winks out. Mm. A little bit later, he notices a series of uh, lights up on top of a ridge, like a cluster of about 10 lights, you know, like little tiny lights, not fireflies because this is in January. Right. Uh, and these lights, the anomalous lights, play into this experience, you know, throughout, you know, this entire investigation or lights in the forest seem to have a, a real commonality uh, with this particular location. So, you know, when Bob told us about his experience, uh, <laughs> our, our, uh, our Bob White story was, a, was a little bit lame. It was, <laughs> it was pretty pathetic, but uh, so that kind of uh, piqued our interest in that. And, you know, the rest of the weekend, we did a little exploration and all, and there was a meadow about a quarter of a mile, half a mile away from camp, you know, where this UFO uh, sighting took place. And we thought that we would uh, go there and walk and see if we could find like a track line, you know, from a cryptid or something and just kind of check it out. And it just so happens it's such a, it's a beautiful spot, you know, it's remote. Uh, it's, you can, not too terrible of a hike, you know, from our base camp. And we decided it would just be a nice place to investigate. And so we just kind of happened to stumble across it. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, are there, do you know of any, 
I just think of, are there any military bases nearby or installations of any kind? You know, yeah, there are, uh, but the military bases that are nearby do not do rotary wing, do not do fixed wing. So there's no, you know, they don't, it's more of, and I'm not going to go into what they do, but they're, they're more self-contained. They don't send troops out and do things there. You know, pretty much everything stays right there on that base. Okay. And it's just because it makes me think of, especially with all the anomalous stuff with the lights, the Renishan Forest case, uh, the, uh, right. then you've got sightings of Bigfoots near um, bases. You know, it just seems that the paranormal or these type of um, activities tend to happen adjacent to military bases. There might be a correlation. There might not. I was just curious. Uh, well, what happened on the, the next night you guys were out there? Well, really, you know, that that was the end of that that weekend, you know, the 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 UFO and hiking to the meadow and, you know, looking for, you know, tracks and stuff. And we thought, well, yeah, this this is kind of cool. So why don't we just make it a point to come back here sometime in the future? Yeah. Well, in July of 2016, uh, you know, during the summer, we decided to uh, come back about uh, seven months later because we were really intrigued by this meadow. And we started really researching it. And the way we decided to research it this time is have some teams set up in the meadow itself. There's a large ridge to the south of the meadow, which the Possum Trot Trail runs on top of this ridge, and a creek to the north. And we decided, let's, let's put some teams in the field and have them equipped with uh, FLIR units, which is a uh, heat-detecting uh, monocular. It basically detects thermal heat and see if we find anything. And uh, we sent one of our team members uh, across the ridge, and he was going to act as a driver. He was going to drive anything from the ridge down to us and see if he could push anything to the west end of the ridge where we also had a uh, – or west end of the field where we also had a team that might see something coming off the ridge on the far far side of the, the meadow. Uh, so we set up. And this, this gentleman, Bob, started his, uh, started his maneuvering, started his trek. And he radioed, radioed us and he said, hey, I'm at point X, which was a, a, is a well-known landmark. He goes, said, and I don't remember how I got here. Mm. And so we were concerned. You know, did he have some sort of you know, cerebral event like a stroke or a, a cl clot or you know, something like that? Uh, you know, did he fall? You know, is he injured? And we started asking these questions and he sounded coherent. You know, he wasn't slurring his speech. He hadn't fallen. He just doesn't remember getting to this particular landmark. Hmm. And, you know, most of the folks on our, my team are, you know, very driven type A kind of people or we wouldn't be out there researching. And he's like, yeah, no, no, I'm fine. You know, I want to continue on up over the ridge. You know, let's, you know, let's not call this off. You know, I'm fine. Okay, fair enough. So he uh, he continues over the ridge, drops down into the uh, west end of the meadow, and is moving to link up with one of the teams. The team that's watching him uh, through their FLIR monocular consists of uh, one gentleman who's a uh, former U.S. Army Ranger, has a degree in physics from Georgia Tech, uh, and is a is a very very smart, competent, serious individual. Yeah. His team teammate. Likewise, has a degree from Georgia Tech, a master's degree, and currently works as a senior uh, paramedic at that time. Damn, Once so again, legit folks. Yeah, solid, you know, legitimate, down-to-earth folks. Mm -hmm. 
So they're watching Bob through their FLIR unit, and they see a man-shaped heat signature you know, walking along the edge of the meadow as, as he's approaching them. And this heat signature all of a sudden turns into an orb or a sphere of energy, of heat. It moves at a very rapid speed. We figured the speed to be about 25 miles per hour, stopped, and then turned back into a man-shaped heat signature. Damn, that's cool. So once again, this was Bob who had the missing time. I was like, okay, okay, something has happened to Bob. Yeah. You know, yeah. He Something's didn't going just, on with Bob. Yeah. yeah Bob, you know, Bob has you know, <laughs> jumped down the rabbit, tra- a rabbit hole, and uh, we're really concerned about him. So, you know, they rush over to Bob and, you know, they radio him, are you okay? And they see on their FLIR unit him, his heat signature, bring the radio up to his mouth and reply. So this definitely is Bob, what they just saw. So they get to him and they're like, man, man, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, why wouldn't I be? Well, you know, you just, you just turned into this, you know, this, this energy thing and you moved at 25 some odd miles per hour. And he goes, no, I didn't. I was just walking along the meadow. So it was like a really weird, and we actually have had some pretty heated arguments over this, or not arguments, but discussions. Yeah. Whose perception was right and whose perception was wrong? And Bob's point of view, he's just walking along. In their point of view, he, he turned into a ball of energy. So whose time was dilated and whose perception was altered? That's the mind-blowing part about this. So he didn't notice a terrain change. He didn't notice like uh, being lifted up. It, it was just a snap from one place no. to another. He, but he, in his mind, thinks that he traversed that on foot the entire way. Yeah, yeah, just you know, walking. You know, to him, there was no, you know, compression of time. You know, there was no loss of time. There was no feeling of uh, disorientation. He just was walking along like you know he normally would. Yeah, I, I know we're going to talk about his GPS unit in a minute, but was there any differences in watches or GPS units or anything like that for anybody? Uh, no, uh, now we have had problems with, uh, you know, some of our electronics. And ac- actually what we do now is right here, this is an analog automatic watch. Yeah. It's yeah. not electronic. So we, we use analog equipment as much as we can out there because we've had some problems with uh, watches and such. But no, there was nothing, you know, anomalous. Uh, at that time, you know, that's something that we want to look in in the future is if we can come up with a field deployable, highly accurate timepieces that we can set a baseline, leave one timepiece in the meadow and see if time is contracted or expanded. Uh, you know, that's something that's an experiment we want to do in the future. We haven't quite been able to find the right kind of uh, timepiece that would uh, do that. Yeah, you can't just toss a Timex out there. You're uh, going to need like an atomic clock or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, that's something that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, in our future, but so that was, uh, you know, that was pretty weird, you know, it's pretty weird and pretty and incredible. Thought, yeah, you know, I've never heard of anything like that. Happening. Right. So we, no, no, nor have I, nor have I. And so we're thinking, well, you know, this obviously just, just can't get any stranger, you know, than Bob, Bob missing time and then turning into a luminescent orb and running around the meadow with his hair on fire. You know, well, I'm sure you're uh, right, and that nothing weird, weirder than that happened, right? And then that was the end of the story. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Why else would we be going out to the meadow for the next two or three years? Right. Uh, so the next morning, next morning, Bob, you know, uh, as we were, you know, cooking our breakfast and all, and having our coffee, Bob came up to our group around the fire, and he goes, "Hey, I want to show you all something." And he pulled out his GPS unit. Bob has a very good habit 
of always having his GPS running when he's in the woods. So it constantly runs a, a continuous track of where he's been during each outing. That is a good habit. He probably followed your geocache and got lost one time when he didn't do it. And he's like, never again, man. This yeah. thing is staying on. Where's my car? Yeah. Uh, Couldn't you put and, red ones on the back of the trees, man? It wouldn't mess with the experience. So he, uh, he showed us his track from the previous night. And it showed several long, straight line, linear tracks of about two to three kilometers in length. You cannot traverse over this terrain in a straight line on foot for two or three kilometers. You just can't do it. It's too rugged. Yeah. So the only way that a person could have traversed in a straight line for two or three kilometers in this area was in the air. Mm. Damn, now Bob can fly. What happened to Bob with his missing time? Yep, yep. What happened in that little sliver of time when he appeared to be an orb of energy? And that was only for about 25 yards for only a few seconds, let's say? It, it was about, I would have to go back and look at my notes. It was, it was about 100 yards okay. in several seconds. So it was, you know, it, it, we calculated out he would have had to move, the, the orb moved at about 25 miles an hour. But you saw it move in a straight line across the field, not in the directions that his GPS tracked. Yeah, yeah, no, his, Damn. right, right. His GPS tracks were entire, entirely independent of uh, a lot of, most of his movements of that evening. And even that is strange because you'd think if he was wearing a clock or something or a watch, that would be altered if the GPS was altered also. But it seems like time didn't change for him, but the location the GPS said that he was in changed and in extremely anomalous ways. Well, you know, and, and that's a good point. You know, and you start getting this, some, some quantum weirdness here. You know, what if he stayed stationary and reality moved underneath him, but Damn, he stayed in this. the same place? Yes, absolutely. You're on so, the right show, man. This is great. So, you know, I mean, it's, oh, you just start getting into, you, know, you start thinking about this stuff and all this quantum weirdness starts popping up, you know, and next thing you know, you know, you're down to your fourth or fifth beer and it all starts to make sense. Absolutely. So, uh, and you know, that not later that night, uh, the Saturday evening, this was, uh, this was, uh, Friday morning, Bob showed us that and we did some, uh, did some more stuff that, uh, that evening, one of our base camp operators said, Hey, you know, I, this Saturday evening, I see y'all are coming back into camp. I see your green headlamps up on top of the ridge. I, why are y'all using the ridge instead of the trail? And it's like, you know, we're still in the meadow. I don't know what you're seeing. Yeah. And he started really looking at this green light and it turned out to be about 30 feet off the ground, moving around like a green lensed headlamp. So once again, it's that strange lights, you know, up on the ridges and up in the trees. Yeah. And it is almost associated with the folklore, uh, with like fairy lights and things like that in the forest, especially in the area. So I think it's interesting too that you follow the folklore, which got you to this point, And now you're seeing examples of what, you know, people back in the day that didn't have lamps or didn't have flashlights and car lights and things like that were reporting. Right. Right. I, you know, and there's, you know, even here in the U S I mean, you can go back to, uh, you know, this area, uh, that we've been exploring is, you know, people by uh, folks mostly of uh, Scots Irish descent, like, you know, like many areas in the South and you have a lot of uh, uh, Gaelic folklore that, you know, come over the wee people with all the wisp, you know, fairies, things like that. And then you go and you start looking at things like the Brownsville lights and some other, you know, anomalous lights that are out there. So this is, this is a very real phenomena. Yeah. And, you know, here we are experiencing it, you know, right here in our little, you know, meadow. Yeah. 
And just like the Marfa Lights and just like uh, Richard Rokeby's uh, book, uh, the, the Burton Hill, um, Bassett Hill, have you heard of that? Uh, 1923, they had those lights over there in the UK. It's very cool. Uh, but same same type of phenomena. And it, it is uh, pretty prevalent and in these interesting hotspot type of areas. But that's not all you saw. So where does the story go from no. there? So, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the same guy, the radio operator, our base camp uh, uh, chief, uh, once again, had to get up in the middle of the night and shake hands with an old friend. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he's taking care of business and he notices uh, this white humanoid shape kind of peering around a tree, you know, like the sh- upper shoulders and the head, you know, watching us, watching our camp, you know, maybe 30, 40 yards, you know, 30, 30, 40 meters from our camp. So he goes to wake up one of our teammates who has a, she has a very high end FLIR unit. And he's like, you know, Kristen, wake up, wake up, get your FLIR. Something's out here. Something's out here. By the time she can get her wits about her, get her equipment and get out there, whatever it is was gone. And, that, and uh, to give you some background on Glenn, uh, he's a career paramedic, uh, was a flight medic for many, many years, a very solid, grounded person, you know, a professional, uh, you know, with, with years of experience, you know, seeing all kinds of high stress and weird stuff at, you know, through his years as a paramedic and flight medic flew all over the world as a flight medic. So, you know, once again, another well-grounded uh, individual, the individual he woke up is a ER nurse, you know, once again, another well-grounded educated person. Uh, they, they could never find whatever this thing was, you know, with her FLIR unit, never showed up, never showed up again. The next day, uh, several, several of us have uh, taken uh, courses in man tracking, tracking people through the forest. So we went over there and we looked for uh, tracks, uh, disturbed vegetation, you know, any marking on the tree where something might have put its hand or leaned up against it. And we could find no indication of anything was there. But nevertheless, you go back and you look at the folklore of this area. And there is a history and reports of a white humanoid figure in this general area that people have seen. Damn. Just watching people pee. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The the pee the peeing peeper, you know. I don't, I don't know what it's <laughs> the peeper. There you go. <laughs> the, the peeper. But uh, yeah. Now I got myself tickled. Uh, yeah. No. We'll anyway, get I like to class the show up here. So yeah, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but the finest entertainment. When Absolutely, man. Reality. You you got to. I love it. That's that's gonna be my tagline. I'm gonna throw that in the intro. Uh, so what happened after that? So no physical evidence left by this being, but there is a history of folklore in the area with the right. exact entity or with the cryptid that you saw. Uh, right. Yeah. So you know that uh, that was kind of you know the the one of the last things of that weekend. You know the the the, the white you know entity or creature you know looking at us, and uh, so. We're like, well, crap, this is like a really cool, fascinating place. Why would we not continue to come back here? Yeah. And uh, some more people, you know, that, you know, in my circle of uh, friends uh, heard about it. I had a have a pretty well-known group out of the Carolinas that uh, do cryptid research, and they're kind of looking at it from the, the cryptid angle. They're like, yeah, this is really cool. Can, can we come down there and you know, visit with y'all. And I was, yeah, of course, you know, this isn't, you know, as long as you sign the non-disclosure agreement about the location, I'm, you know, I'm down with it. Absolutely. And uh, so they came down uh, in February of 2017. So we, you know, we waited a few months, you know, you don't want to 
saturate a site with over-investigation. So we, we try to wait about six months to a year between visits. And it turns out that 2017 in February, once again in the wintertime, and if the fact that it's winter plays a very important uh, role in this particular uh, expedition, we decided to get together and uh, do another, another visit, another expedition. Uh, once again, uh, using the same methodology that we had done before, and before we ever go out in the woods, we always have a, uh, a pre-operational brief. Everybody knows where they're going, you know what their mission is, what the, who the teams are, you know, what the radio call signs are, you know who's running the uh, radio net back at base camp. So we try to do this in a very organized, sensical way. Right. Uh, it makes things a lot run a lot smoother, and I think it's a lot safer. So you know we took the same a course of action, uh, you know, in 2017. We had three teams out in the field. Each team was equipped with a FLIR unit. We had another team of three people that were going to run across the top of the ridge and see if we saw anything from our higher vantage point on the ridge because this was the winter time. There was no vegetation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the team I was on was the, uh, the ridge running team, and we're moving across the top of the ridge, and we stopped uh, adjacent uh, to the west end of the meadow. And usually about this time, we drop down off the ridge and come into the west end of the meadow, meet, meet up with the westmost team and work our way back east. While we were stopping and gathering our gear together, getting ready to drop off the ridge, one of our team members noticed in his FLIR unit three uh, figures, a man-shaped, human-shaped, standing side by side, putting off heat, in his FLIR unit, these three figures meld into one figure. Damn. And I can get into some interdimensional explanations of why that is. Yeah. And why that appear that way. Yeah. With three legs that drops down into two to the, a two-dimensional world, you're going to interpret that as three individuals mm. or three things. But as the stool keeps moving through the two-dimensional world, the legs mold into one. And then as it passes through the two-dimensional world, it disappears from the perspective of the two-dimensional world people. So that might be what we're experiencing is things winking in and out of existence in our dimension. And we're seeing things that appear to be multiple, but are actually part of the same entity or organism or machine or whatever. Yeah, like that Flatland book written back what, right. in the 30s? It, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Right, right out of Flatland. Yeah. Uh, so we, we observed this and it's like, well, holy crap, you know, there's something's down there. Yeah. So we immediately drop down off of the ridge and, and go to, uh, you know, start approaching some of the other team members. And over the radio, we get uh, uh, communications from uh, the team that's in the middle of the meadow. And they said, we're picking up something very strange on our FLIR unit. And it's like, well, you know, what are you picking up? And they said, we're picking up these cubes forming that were about 10 meters by six meters by six meters, like basically like a big box. Yeah. Okay. Which is interesting because if you go back and you look at the history of Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, there's a history of these flying boxes. Yep. Yep. There's also a history of flying boxes. Uh, attacking people ufos in brazil mm. it's like the ghost so of an angry ups these, man you know 
Yeah, or, or something, or you know, a haunted mailbox. And, you yeah, know, yeah. Well, the, the uh, black black cubes have been seen as well. I yeah. mean, those are uh, there's been reports of those in Texas, UFO type things. Yeah. So, was what was the composition of these boxes that you as as much as you could tell? Were they like metallic well, it, or? Well, it was just like a faint heat outline of a box, right? You know, okay. very very faint. You know, not tr- you know not terribly different than the ambient temperature of the surroundings, but noticeable. But noticeable. Yeah. And, you know, several of the team members, you know, were, were picking this up on their FLIR unit. So, unfortunately, uh, on FLIR units, you don't run them in the record mode all the time. It eats up your battery life and you have a finite n- amount of uh, space that you can record data. So, about the time he hit record, it started dissipating. So, it's like, oh, well, you know, w- we've got the experiential, you know, data here. People, you know, we're going to you know, record this when we get back to camp. So we, uh, we, we, we met up with that team, and it's like, well, let's vector uh, one of our groups into the area where this box or cube was and see if they can detect anything. Well, I think I sh- sent you the video of this. It was so cool. It, <laughs> you did. <laughs> and and our, our team is appro- approaching you know, where this box or cube was. And remember, this is in the wintertime. There's no vegetation. Mm-hmm. As they approach the area where the cube is, they are red or the white hot heat signatures on the FLIR and they disappear. Yeah. Yeah. They wake out of existence. It is so cool looking. And uh, it was so startling that the audio is you can hear one of the team members say, Did they just disappear? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, you know, from the team's perspective, all they encountered was they went to this area and it seemed really dark and very environmentally dense, if that makes any sense. Very heavy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when they approached this area, they didn't encounter any resistance. There were no brambles. There were no briars. You know, there were no, you know, tangle foot vines, nothing like that. And when they turned around to come out of it, they started encountering briars and brambles and fighting their way through bushes that weren't there before when they went in. So it's almost like there was a little bubble of uh, altered reality right there where that was. And it was dissipating as they were standing there, you know, experiencing this. And by the time they started to come out of this location, everything had returned to normal, which was, you know, dead vines and, you know, dried up brambles and sticker bushes and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like a but glitch. it wasn't enough to. It's like a glitch in the matrix. Man. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And, you know, and but it's important to note that there wasn't enough you know briars and brambles that would mask their heat signature because all this stuff was dead in the wintertime. Yeah. Uh, while uh, one of our team members, uh, we were she was watching this. She turns to her right, and there's a little tiny copse of trees, and she says, "Who or what is that?" And there's a one or two heat signatures that appear to be some sort of entity giving off heat watching us. Yeah. And in we the middle we're of all, nowhere, cause you guys were all right. together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So cool. it, it, and all of our teams were, you know, right there. So we, we had accountability for everybody. So once again, there were these things, these entities putting off some sort of heat observing us. So, you know, once all of this, we got the team recovered and we all got together and we were discussing among ourselves, should we continue investigating? 
or should we go back to our campsite, do an after action review, try to record this, you know, while it's still fresh on our minds. So we're debating this back and forth. And I, I pretty much had to put my foot down and said, look, okay, this is amazing. This is remarkable. We have probably the only known footage video wise that I'm aware of, of somebody approaching a portal and disappearing. Uh, I don't know if any more out, any out there. Not declassified if they are there. Yeah. yeah. Nothing in the public sector. Right. And uh, so I'm like, okay, we're going to go back to camp and, you know, debrief. And I get this radio call from Glenn, who's our base camp operator. He goes, hey, Trey, there's somebody here that really wants to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah, Glenn, I'll see you in a little bit. And he goes, no, no, it's not me. It's somebody else. Mm. And I'm like, somebody else? What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, we have a visitor. Okay. Yeah. So tell our visitor that I'll be there here directly, but, you know, we've got stuff to do when we get back. So, uh, we, you know, we gather up our gear and secure everything and start moving the half mile back to our base camp. Now, when I enter back into base camp, to my surprise, I found a businesswoman. Yeah. Here we are, February, in the middle of nowhere in the wintertime, and there's this businesswoman standing there in loafers, slacks, blouse, and a blazer. She was just out there to ask you how your car warranty was and if you needed another update on it. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it seems like those people can find They'll you find regardless. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> They're ubiquitous. Uh, and this woman was absolutely adamant. I mean, almost forceful. And she was acting very strange, very off. Uh, Glenn, like I said, our base camp operator, years of experience as a paramedic, he thought she was acting like she was inebriated. Mm -hmm. You know, that was how she was acting. And she wanted the team to drop what we were doing and follow her to this deserted road in the nature preserve and go way down deep into the, you know, the, 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 the boonies where she said there was an old structure that was inhabited by something that she called monkey bears. Monkey bears. Cool. That'd be a yeah. good name for a band though. Yeah. And, uh, she was assistant. I mean, almost to the point of being aggressive about it. And I'm like, okay, you know, look, I don't really have time to deal with you. And quite frankly, I don't think this is a good idea because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, is she setting us up to rip us off? You know, yeah, we carry a lot of really expensive murder you or something. Yeah. Yeah. But you had quite a team. So it's interesting. What was she wearing? Uh, she was wearing loafers. Yeah. Slacks, a blouse and a blazer. Nothing geared it, up the, to be out in the winter. No, no, in no. In the no. middle of nowhere. No, like she just came out of an office. Yeah. So it makes it so, even weirder. And so. Uh, you know, she's just acting really weird. And probably the strangest thing she does is she's talking to us and then she stops and she walks out about maybe 20 yards, 30 yards from the, where we were. And she's still in the edge of the light of our lanterns and lamps. And she squats down and urinates. Yeah, that's, that's odd. You don't see that every day. <laughs> no, no, you don't. And so we, we got the woman's name. And uh, I started looking into it afterwards, and there actually is a woman by this name in this area that 
matches the description of the woman that visited us that is a licensed professional. And I'm not going to go into what her profession is, but it's a, you know, something that you have to be highly educated uh, and be licensed. And, you know, talking about education, uh, something that I forgot to mention is she, when she was talking to me, she started asking, you know, where did you go to university? And I said, you know, at the University of West Georgia. And she goes, oh, I went there too. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. I said, what were some of your professors? And she started naming off professors that I knew. Oh, that's awesome. She goes, yeah, I, I, yeah, I have a, she goes, I have a degree in psychology. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. So you're naming off professors I know. You're claiming to have gone to the same university as me. Then you have a degree in the same field. What are the coincidences of a wayward businesswoman in the middle of the forest in the wintertime wearing her rather snappy loafers and blazer going to the same university and studying with the same professors as I? It's out there with some breakthroughs on some monkey bears, bro. What, but what, um, right, right. It, it's an odd, it's an odd thing anyway, but do, she does sound drunk, dude. I mean, and, but either, either way, she wasn't dressed for being out there. And how the hell did she find you guys? Right. Yeah. And it was, uh, I started doing some research into it and I came across, uh, some encounters of, uh, that people had with the men in black. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. A woman in black. Yeah. And you know, they're improperly dressed for the occasion. Or their or, or their attire is antiquated. Uh, they don't understand social cueing. They don't, you know, their manner mannerisms are are off. Uh, you know, they don't understand facial communications and body language, and they don't have a sense of what is and is not proper. I.e., urinating in front of a group of people you don't know. Yeah, is not, is not proper. I mean, we just met. Maybe after a couple of hangouts, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, Here's uh, here are the options is either a I encountered a real professional licensed lady in the middle of the woods in her blazer having the absolute worst night of her life, which, if disclosed, would probably ruin her in her career. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's option one. Yep. Option two, that this is somebody mimicking a real person. Yeah. Yeah, like a skinwalker, for instance. Right. Hmm. Or a doppelganger. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I made a decision not to approach this person because, you know, later on, because if I did and I said, hey, you know, you were out there drunk, acting crazy, peeing in front of everybody. Oh, I sure hope it doesn't ruin your career. The way she would react, say, well, that's not me. Yeah, yeah. And if it was a doppelganger, you once again would say, hey, that's not me. Right. So there wasn't much of a return on my investment. And tracking her down and interviewing her. No, you made the right call. So, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was the, that, that evening we finally got her to go away and she just struck a, such an odd, odd nerve in all of us that, uh, my buddy, who's the ranger, I said, you know, Tim, do you have your sidearm on you? And he goes, yeah, of course. And I said, you and I are going to move outside of the camp about 50 yards and we're just going to go around the camp to see if anybody was left behind because I am, I am not comfortable with this whole situation. And so she eventually left and uh, we were able to do our after action review and uh, the transcript of our after action review is in the book. It's word for word. And uh, when you read through it, you know, these are real 
down-to-earth professional people describing what we encountered that evening. And it's, it's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, it is, man. Um, I'm stuck on the monkey bear thing. Did you ever go find it or did you ask her where the structure was? Maybe that's your next book. You know, the, uh, the next day we had a, a few hours before we had to break camp. We did find this road and we drove down it and it was a gated, you know, the, uh, the, 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 uh, Department of Natural Resources had it gated about halfway down its length, and we hiked maybe two or three miles past the uh, gate. We never found a structure. We were not, you know, beset upon by wild monkey bears or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and our, it, go ahead. Yeah, or, or gummy bears or any kind of bears. Right? <laughs> any any damn bears out there? Yeah. I, well, it is interesting too because if she was just some drunk lady, then the behavior kind of checks out. But the the oddities are. The, the weird stuff, the, the, like you said, the, the men in black type of thing where they are, they're socially incredibly awkward. They are not dressed for the occasion. They've got weird. Now, now did you notice like her skin looked a little off or gaunt or anything like that? You know, it was dark and yeah. you know, we were operating off, off a lantern light. So I really didn't get a very good you know, look at her like you would in the sunlight. Did she have an interesting like foreign sounding accent or anything like that? Not that I recall, no. You know, sometimes they talk a little weird, a little robotic. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, now, now that you, something you, you mentioned, you just you refreshed my memory because I'm going off an abbreviated set of notes. Yeah. Uh, after we got done with our after action review, uh, one of our team members uh, by the name of Lee uh, heard a voice, a, a metallic robotic sounding voice off in the distance as he was returning to his, uh, his campsite, his you know, where he had his tent set up. So, you know, once again, a disembodied voice, you know, you go right back to Skinwalker Ranch and they've got, you know, uh, reports of, you know, people hearing voices, you know, 30 yards uh, above them, you know, and here's Lee hearing this strange voice, you know, coming from the woods that sounds, you know, metallic or robotic. Yeah. Now, is this area on like a ley line or anything like that? If you guys looked into kind of the geo, um, geo anomalies in the area? Yeah, it is in a, and I'm not going to exactly talk about it, what what lat, latitude it is, but it is in a a latitude that is known for high strangeness. Okay, then that that's all we need. We don't we don't need to give yeah. anything away here. Yeah, interesting, man. Okay, um, okay. Well, what what happened after her? Was that the, all that happened on that particular investigation in February? Yeah, pretty much that was it. I when mean, I say that's like, all. It was crazy. Yeah, oh, that, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that was it. Yeah, it's pretty mild compared to your last one. People turning into orbs and then, you know, missing time and disappearing from flare cameras and then, yeah. you know, cryptid standing down there giving off heat signatures where nobody else was. Could it, is it possible that that entity or whatever may have shapeshifted or something like that and been the entity that was off to the side and then appeared as this woman later on? I mean, anything goes uh, out there, yeah, right? Who knows? Yeah. Okay. So it, yeah, I mean, you're just, uh, you know, you, you're just grasping at straws as far as explanations on this. And, and one of the, uh, it's kind of funny, uh, you know, you were talking about cryptids, you know, the, 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 the guys that came down from Carolinas, you know, the cryptid researchers, uh, they were very much cryptid researchers. And I remember the next morning, uh, one of the gentlemen who, you know, experienced all this just sitting there with this rather odd look on his face. And I said, <laughs> you know, man, what's, what's wrong? He goes, my whole world just changed. <laughs> Everything I thought was, you know, I thought I knew what was going on before. He goes, all of that is upside down now. 
Well, I and, said, well, you, welcome to the rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly right. It is a rabbit hole, but you view it as such. There are a lot of people, man, that are just cryptid people, and then they, they have blinders onto everything else. And there's some people that are UFOs or nuts and bolts crafts coming from other star systems, uh, and they have blinders onto everything else. It's all connected, right? I mean, there's got to be. Oh, yeah. And that's how you view it as well, which I, which is why it makes your investigation so fascinating. You're not a, this is what is going on. Because number one, you're, you're smart enough and you're coherent enough to know that we can't determine that. And then the other part about it is that you are open to the um, patchwork that is the phenomena, because that's what it is. It's a it's a menagerie of, uh, of things that happen. And especially in this area, you're getting a lot of great stuff going on in one particular area, which is so cool, man. I mean, it's just great that you found it and it's great that you're investigating it. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have to be careful as human beings, not only in, you know, doing paranormal research, but in our lives in general of number one, putting experiences into boxes, yep. which strikes me as kind of silly. Yeah. Being closed minded about things. And somehow thinking that everything's not connected because it most certainly is. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. You know, it, it, you know, it's, it's like the adage, if you go through life with blinders on, you're going to miss about, you know, 80% of what's going on around you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it, it is good. And so I, th- I do think it's interesting that you had folks that go out there with a specialized field or they, they specifically only want to look at this part of the phenomena. And then they experience something like that. And man, it, it does. It'll shock your, it'll shock your world. Oh, yeah. Their, their world was definitely rocked. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, will you tell me about the part in your book about Knox Magby? Knox Magby. Uh, that was actually not too long ago. That was in June of 2020. Did we skip over uh, an experience that you wanted to, to talk about? Oh, I mean, yeah. But tons of it. Uh, but, well, I, but, uh, you know, we had had, uh, I'll just abbreviate some of it and then we'll get to Knox Magby. Yes, sir. But, uh, in 2018, we had uh, had done a, a remote uh, trek to a, a another meadow like the one that we had been investigating. We thought, well, maybe we have other anomalous areas in this region. Yeah. And we had hiked to this uh, other meadow about seven miles away, a very rugged cross-country hiking. And while we were there, uh, we had set up camp in a fire break, you know, through the forest that had been cut by the... Uh, by the Department of Natural Resources. And in the middle of the night, a uh, two of my team members observed a beam shooting down that uh, fire break, like this very intense beam of light. Huh. And, uh, and one of the team members also noticed what looked like the sunrise in the west, like this orange glow in the west, western sky, but obviously the sun doesn't rise in the west. Right. Uh, when we woke up the next morning, one of our team members I uh, noticed that his pack had a, a stick woven through the hip belt. And I think I sent you that photograph too. Yes, that was crazy. And uh, it was set up in such a way that he could not have set his pack onto this uh, stick or branch accidentally. Something or someone actually had to pick up his pack and weave one side of this branch under his hip belt on one side and over the top of his hip belt on the opposite. So, so that was uh, that was very odd. Yeah. Well, what, while all of this was going on, even more strange stuff was happening by our uh, base camp team, you know, several miles away. You know, we hiked back to an extraction point, radioed for them to come get us. And we got back and we were surprised uh, when other team members started relating their experience in the meadow that morning. They had gone out there and they had noticed two 
uh, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them tracks. Okay. But they're, but they're not really tracks, but it's like you would imagine like a tractor trail, you know, through high grass. Okay. But the weird thing is, is this thing started in the middle of the meadow and ended in the meadow. It was almost like something was dropped into the meadow. It drove a distance and then was lifted back out. The grass was not broken. It was bent over. Like crop circles. Like exactly the nodes like, are, okay, damn. Exa- exactly. And there were molehills, anthills, and small saplings in these tracks that were not disturbed, that were still vertical and were not compressed. There were no tread marks. Uh, and what makes it also interesting is near the terminus of this track, we had, we had been uh, reviewing some photographs from the previous year. And in one of the photographs, at the end of the uh, meadow, near where these tracks uh, terminated, you know, uh, this year, the previous year, it looked like there was a cryptid watching us from the edge of the woods, some sort of creature that was observing us. Yeah. So uh, two team members uh, went out later that afternoon and took a full spectrum camera. And they were following the tracks along and they're looking through their full spectrum camera. And lo and behold, they find a cube. This damn cube. Manifesting itself. Yeah. And so they go, they go to photograph it. And to their disappointment, there was no SD card in the camera. <laughs> damn it. You know, these are seasoned. Yeah, these are seasoned <laughs> researchers. And, you know, they just, you know, I had a whole, you know, litany of apologies, you know, when they got back. It happened and, to you the know, best we went back us, out yeah. there and we could. Yeah, yeah. And the, it was gone. You know, the, the yeah. anomalous uh, cube was gone. But uh, you know, once again, these uh, you know, one's a very well-known cryptid researcher. His partner is a electrical engineer, very down-to-earth, scientific kind of guy. Both of them sent me affidavits. You know, this is what we saw through the full-spectrum camera, and so you know, it's it's a valid you know witness statement. Absolutely. Uh, something else we tried uh, back in uh, November of nineteen is uh, some an SD session. Oh, like which, the spirit I don't box. know if your listeners are familiar. Yeah, with the spirit box. Okay, okay. But uh, for the li- listeners that aren't familiar, please, yes, sir. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. They've. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners have seen the ghost shows. You know where they use a ghost box. Uh, the SD session is similar to that, but with a little bit of a uh, difference. Where we try to take out any kind of uh, chance uh, interpretation by the uh, the listener. The uh, we, we take a ghost box and it hops, you know, hops around on FM frequencies. And we put uh, sound canceling earbuds connected to the output of the ghost box. We put those on an individual that we call the receiver. And so we put those into the ear of the receiver and over those earbuds, we put a set of shooting muffs. So he is completely isolated. The only thing that he or she can hear is what's coming out of the ghost box. We also put a blindfold on this individual. So they can't see what's going on around them. Their their instructions are if they hear any intelligible word, regardless of what it is, they are to repeat it. So if they hear kumquat or rutabaga, they just say rutabaga. Yeah. They don't know if it has anything to do with what's going on around them. They just are repeating what's coming through the, uh, the ghost box. But this pretty much takes out any anticipation of the listener on what the questions are or trying to make words fit what they perceive the question is. They're just spouting out words. 
And that's a pretty common practice in the paranormal world, world. And one of my beliefs is let's take best practices from these different fields and bring them to the meadow, shake it up and see what happens. And we actually engaged in a two-way conversation with an entity. And the entity was, was, was kind of cool at the beginning, talking about the portals. And, and then I started trying to dig down into what exactly some of the phenomenology was, you know, electromagnetism, uh, radiation, microgravities, things like this. And it started becoming very agitated, very upset with us, not threatening, but like maybe we were getting into areas that we didn't need to be uh, getting into, you know, into you know, certain concepts that we just best leave alone. It's like you didn't have enough clearance for the paranormal world. You right, know? right. Yeah. yeah, we didn't have we didn't have a need to know. A need to know, right. <laughs> and uh, so that was really amazing. Uh, you know, and the folks that have watched that video and I've got the, tr the transcript that's in the book. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I, I know there are naysayers out there saying, you know, it's all coincidence and all of that. Yeah. You know what? I, this stage, I don't believe in coincidence anymore. It's synchronicity. Yes. I'm with you. I'm a big fan of the synchronicities. So for, for the folks, just, just to be very clear on it. So what happens is, is that you are asking a question that this person cannot hear. There's an FM right. receiver in their ears. They are blindfolded. So you are asking basically the universe or the spirit or this entity to use this individual with the FM frequencies as a conduit to, right. to answer questions that you're, you're asking. Just for the folks, just for clarification. A absolutely. And, you know, some of the theory on that is that it is a manifestation on a quantum level of the observer effect. Yeah. That by asking the question, you are influencing what random snippets of words happen to coincide at that exact moment in the universe on the ghost box. Right. I've got a good reference for it. So um, Bumblebee from the Transformers, remember he didn't actually yeah. talk. He talked through his radio and it was right. different snippets of songs or clips or whatever. And that's the equivalent of that just with ghosts or entities. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, and you know, we're calling them entities. Uh, the, the wonderful uh, John Keel, he, mm -hmm. he called them, uh, Ultra terrestrial. That yeah. was the term he used. I love that. Yeah. Uh, and I started thinking about that and, you know, not to diminish his work, but the term I use is paradimensionals. I like These that too. Are yeah. thing, so, you know, we are communicating with some sort of paradimensional intelligence. Uh, and it, like I said, it's, it was just a really amazing uh, two-way conversation. That, that really got us interested. It is cool. And you did, you sent me the video of that, which was awesome. It's just an interesting process to watch. And it's, it's yeah. really cool, man. You get some very, uh, this is not coincidence type of uh, information out of it, which I think is fascinating. Right. And yeah, the transcript is in the book, which I will be linking in the show notes, guys. So. Okay. So uh, now you were asking about Knox Magby. Yes. Uh, we, uh, we decided to go back in uh, June of 2020, uh, you know, not, not too long ago. And uh, did some, you know, explorations of the meadow and didn't really have a whole lot going on. Uh, we had some vehicles that would lock themselves back at our base camp. We weren't able to stay right at the meadow because COVID had shut down some of the uh, developed campgrounds. The uh, Department of Natural Resources had shut them down. So we were doing what's called dispersed camping. And we were staying at a, a very primitive hunt camp several miles away. So... Uh, other than having some vehicles lock themselves and unlock themselves back at base camp, it was, it was pretty uneventful. But while we were at the meadow, uh, once again, Bob, who's like 
a freak magnet. He was a, <laughs> he stayed back at base camp. That should be his call sign for his radio. Yeah. 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 Foxtrot Mike, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, we were, uh, while we were out, he said that he heard the crunch of the gravel of a vehicle driving down the road through the, uh, the nature preserve. And you know, it's a very distinctive. Anybody that's ever heard a, a vehicle drive down a gravel road, you know, in the in the woods, it's very distinctive. Yeah. So it was a very dark night, pitch black, and he's waiting to see a set of headlights. He'll come down the road. None ever appear. Hmm. And he hears whatever it is, you know, go past him and stop. And what makes it interesting is the only way that you would be able to drive down that road that particular night would be to use the most advanced night vision equipment that the U.S. military has. It was that dark that night. Mm. And no lights. And, and no lights. Yeah. Nothing. He never saw anything. He just heard it, you know, move past him. So you know, what did he hear? I, I don't know. Something you know? unexplainable, man. So while all of this was going on, we were out in the meadow uh, using Stephen Greer's CE5 protocol. Yeah. So we're trying to see if, you know, anything wants to come and manifest or, uh, you know, come visit with us. And, you know, much to our disappointment, nothing really happened other than we saw an extraordinary number of uh, what appeared to be satellites traversing the night sky, about 40 or 50 of them, a whole bunch of satellites. Were they in a row or they, just kind of off? You know, just, you know, one moving this way, you know, one moving east, west, one moving in north, south, you know. Not like that Starlink thing, like the Elon Musk. No, no, okay. no, 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 not like, not like, not like the Iridium satellites or any of that stuff. Right. Okay. So, that is interesting. Uh, so, you know, they, they just appeared to be regular satellites, albeit, uh, you know, a large number of them. So we came back to camp and, you know, Bob told his, you know, story and, you know, we thought, well, that's interesting and went to bed. Next, next morning, uh, as we were starting to, you know, wake up and you know, start to get our gear together to pack up and go home the next morning, uh, one of my team members approached me, uh, a gentleman by the name of Tony. Now, a little bit about Tony. He's a U.S. Air Force Academy graduate, has a degree in engineering, uh, served several years in U.S. Air Force Special Operations. Another very solid, down-to-earth, real guy. And he said, Trey, I want to tell you what happened to me. He goes, at about 4.30 this morning, he goes, I woke up and I had the words Knox Magby in my head. And I said, okay, so you mean like Knox, N-O-X, Magby, M-A-G-B-E-E, -E, phonetically. And he goes, yeah, Knox Magby. And he said, and then again at 6.30, I woke up with these same words in my head. I thought, well, that's, that's pretty odd, you know. Uh, I'm going to write that down and see, you know, what I can find out. So, you know, wrote it down and we all said our goodbyes, went, went back to our various homes. And I started researching Knox Magby uh, that week. And I found out that Knox, N-O-X, is the, the name of the Roman goddess of the night, the night goddess, N-O-X. Okay, well, good. There, there's a hit. Mag Magby turned out to be a bit more elusive. And I found an old English word called magba, and it means kindred or children mm. in old English. Now, old English was spoken in the early part of the Dark Ages, right after the Romans had left Britain. So it's reasonable to assume that Knox and magba were contemporaneous, that the, the people that were speaking old English 
would know about Knox because, you know, the Romans had occupied uh, Great uh, uh, Britain for a number of years. So I put these two together, and what you have is children of the night goddess. So you wonder, what are children that come to us at night that are small in statue that have been reported over the millennia? Well, I'll give you a hint. One of them is on the cover of Whitley Stryber's book. Yeah, the little the grays, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the grays. Yeah, with communion. Yeah. Damn. Children of the night. Well, what about like gnomes or any other type of fey creature uh, that could be associated with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's entirely possible. But if you go back and you look at as these, you know, these these the historical uh, cultures we're describing the phase, you know, we're describing trolls, we're describing fairies, gnomes, pixies, elves, etc. Yeah. Yeah, you start looking at their descriptions of it, and it's like, you know, they kind of look like greys, you know. Yeah. They kinda, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so children of the night goddess. Cool. Another cool name for a band, by the way. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another cool call sign. I better, well. tra- I better trademark those really quick. Yeah, trademark those. That'll, that'll work, man. Take yeah, them. Mo- that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, get the dog children of the night goddess. Yeah, monkey bears and all that. That'd be a a dope summer festival, you know, to go to with all those bands. That's right. Uh, Well, that's that's. uh, So, what happened after that? So, uh, you know, we uh, decided to, you know, go home and uh, you know go back to our regular lives. And uh, my good friend Tim, the former Army Ranger, he and I uh, started communicating, and we came up with an idea of uh he and i backpacking into the meadow and actually setting up just the two of us bring our equipment and and actually immerse ourselves in that environment and so you know we were planning that for the uh the end of july of 2020 you know just a few months ago and so i'm you know i'm getting my gear together and i started doing some uh, research of the uh and i'm going to butcher the name of it, the hatchu bacal forest in romania nailed it uh, which, which, uh, has some very strange stuff. And there's actually a video of a, a fellow, uh, doing some research out there who is yanked off of his feet by an unseen force, uh, and, and, and had some medical, uh, medical issues, you know, once the team, his team finally got to him. So I'm thinking about all this in my mind, you know, okay, what, you know, what do we need to do about safety protocols? You know, you know, we need to explore this phenomenon, but we need to be safe and sensical about it. And so I'm thinking about all this stuff and you know, trying to get my gear ready. And on Sunday morning on the 19th of July, I get a phone call that my good friend Tim had collapsed while visiting a mutual friend and he died that morning. So that was a, that was a kick in the gut. You know, he was, a, he was an integral member of uh, ASOG, the Anomalous Studies and Observation Group. And in, in, uh, some of the uh, later chapters in the book, I talk about how we all did a lot of soul searching. You know, should we continue? Do we want to continue? You know, how can we can how can we go forward without this integral member? You know, of, of the group. You know, with you know without this 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 this, this driven, this knowledgeable, you know, this focused individual. And uh, we decided to go on. And we decided to continue with the, uh, the the visit, the expedition in July of 2020, albeit modified a little bit. We weren't going to go and uh, 
hike and spend it in the meadow. It was a, a very sad outing. Yeah. But it was something we felt like we should do. But not with but not without some discovery. Uh, during that outing, uh, we hiked back out to the meadow and there was an area uh, where I had experienced some very, very intense disorientation. Almost to the point where if I hadn't had another team member with me, I, I could have gotten lost in an area that I've been you know, numerous times. And like I'd mentioned before, I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout, a former Army Intel guy, a hunted big game in Africa, North America, backpacked all over the country. I don't get twisted around in the woods, especially places I've been. And, you know, that that event was so startling that if I hadn't had another team member there and had radio comms back to base camp, I could have ended up in one of David Polite's books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so David, David, if you hear this and you're interested, give me a call. You know, I'll talk talk about what happened on this. We'll get you hooked but, up. Yeah, but uh, so we uh, months later we returned to this spot and very close to where this happened in a small island in the middle of a, a stream adjacent to the meadow, we saw a sapling. Sapling was about twelve feet tall, and the top of the sapling had two branches growing out of the top of it where it you know came up and then split and those two branches have been brought around and fastened at the top into a perfect oval almost like the top of an oval of an onk damn and that's not something you'd ever seen before so it wasn't something no, that happened yet no, at a well, young for, age and then and then grew that way no no it no, was done no, when it was a no, we had no, tall. We, yeah yeah and it was in a it was in a little island in the middle of a stream 12 feet up in the air and I don't know how you could do it without damaging and destroying the sapling. And it was just, it was so odd that we took a photograph of it and, uh, and decided to leave it alone. And the last time we were went, we went and visited it last weekend. Uh, it no longer was like that, which is, which is fine. But I started doing some more research on that and that particular oval shape, uh, in some cultures denotes a doorway or a portal or an entrance. That's the symbology of it. Yeah. So it's strange that we found this sapling tied into that shape, that structure at the beginning of the meadow where we've experienced all of these strange portals and, you know, shifts and dimensions and all of this. Yeah. That is very odd for a very odd area. I mean, it's par for the course out there, but it's still an interesting find for sure. And then it's even more interesting that it was undone the next time. Huh. Well, you're an Eagle right. Scout. What kind of knot was it? Was that a bowler or what, what did well, they have that strapped up? At? Well, well, it was really more of a lashing than a okay. knot. If we, want to, we want to get real technical about it. but uh, <laughs> I knew you'd know. That's why I asked. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was, you know, it was like I said, in this uh, island in the stream, you know, 12 feet up in the air. So we couldn't really get close enough to it to really determine what, how it, it, exactly how it's fashioned. But it looked almost like a lashing, like, you know, layer upon layer wrapping around the two ends of the uh, the two branches. And the tree probably wasn't strong enough to support weight for somebody to climb up there, oh, tie it oh, off. It would have just broken. No, no, it wasn't any more than maybe an inch in diameter. It was, see, you know, a yeah. real wispy uh, sapling. Interesting. Okay. Well, maybe it was one of those monkey bears, dude. Yeah, it could have been, you know, yeah. those damn monkey bears. But I think the portal idea is very cool. I think that that is uh, an awesome concept and it just kind of fits in with the, with the area. It's just such an anomalous zone out there that you guys have stumbled across. So what else, what else has happened out yeah. there? 
Uh, well, as recently as this uh, this past weekend. Yeah, I know you went out there. You said you had a very interesting uh, account. So what, what happened this past weekend? Well, we uh, decided to set up uh, some piece, new pieces of equipment we have, which are the uh, Psionics uh, Color Night Vision Cameras, which are really, really a cool piece of equipment. And we set up at uh, Stevens Lake, which, you know, I, I go into a, a lot of detail on some of the anomalous happenings at Stevens Lake. And uh, I recorded two sets of lights uh, hanging in the air stationary. And they were so stationary that at first I thought I had discovered a radio tower that I had just happened to ignore all these previous times. And these were the anti-collision lights halfway up a radio tower. They were that stationary. So I looked up above them, you know, thinking I would see the red anti-collision beacon on the tip of the tower. Nothing was there. Just these two lights hang, two pairs of lights hanging. Uh, they look like headlamps or headlights, you know, two lights close together, flashing in tandem, two, two sets of them. And then they slowly started to traverse across the sky very slowly. And they'd stop and be stationary for a while. Then they moved laterally and they'd stop. And then they eventually moved down below the horizon where we couldn't see them. What makes it interesting is that whole evening we had noticed a lot of uh, air traffic, you know, aircraft. And you could see the, uh, the red anti-collision lights on the underside of the aircraft. You could see the red and blue navigation lights on the edge of the uh, wings. And they were very distinctive. You could look at these and say, these are obviously airplanes. These two lights were so different than anything else we saw that evening that it, you know, it really struck me as uh, interesting. And I'm going to do some more analysis on the video uh, in the future. Yeah, for sure. Uh, have you, are you familiar with the Oz effect at all? No. Okay. No, so the, the Oz effect has to do with whenever either a UFO sighting or you're walking around in the woods and a Bigfoot appears or some sort of paranormal activity occurs or right before it occurs, everything goes absolutely silent. Uh, no birds, no wildlife of any kind, no noise from trees. Everything sounds like nothing. And it's called the Oz effect. And it usually is associated with experiencing paranormal phenomena. Have you guys experienced right. something like that out there? Not exactly like that. No, that doesn't ring any bells. Uh, sometimes when we go out there, we notice there's not a lot of wildlife. Okay. And, yeah. you know, it's, and it's a, you know, it's an area that you should have, you know, just buku's wildlife. Right. But, um, I don't recall any you know, periods of silence, you know, like you're describing that doesn't it, ring any it, bells. And it's not a hundred percent of the time. It's just something associated with the phenomena sometimes, you know, and with a variety of phenomena. So if you'd experience it in, in apparently it's incredibly noticeable. So it's not something that right. you go, Oh, that's uh, well, awesome, man. Well, I have just really enjoyed talking with you, brother. Uh, I cannot wait to continue well, on uh, with your story here. And uh, let's have you back on soon, man. I want to I want to hear more about this. I'm going to get out to that damn meadow with you sometime. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. Well, you have an open invitation. Thank you, my friend. I would I will definitely take that up on you. Uh, let folks know where they can find you, even though I will be linking some of the stuff in the show notes. But in your own words, how can uh, people uh, follow and keep track of you down here? Oh, probably the best way is the Oxford Paranormal Society Facebook group. Uh, and I, I hate to say this, I'm a little embarrassed. I haven't kept our webpage up. You know, that's bad on me. Uh, but probably the best way is through the uh, through the Facebook group. Yeah. Well, okay. And you've been you've been busy, so it's okay. Uh, I will link that then no, in, yeah, the, yeah. in the show notes as well, uh, as well as how you find your book. Uh, okay. 
I, I just want to thank you again, man. This is a phenomenal story. You're a great guest, and I had a good time with you, brother. You're, you're just a good friend now. You're part of the family, so thank you. Well, well, thank you likewise. Absolutely. All right, my friend. We will talk to you soon, brother. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Massive thanks to Trey Hudson, author of The Meadow Project, Explorations into the South's Skinwalker Ranch. And we really want to thank him for his time on coming on the show here. Uh, Incredible dude, incredible story. Can't wait to see where this goes and what happens next with it. I will be following it pretty close for you guys. We will have Trey back on uh, with new developments as they occur. He's got some big things in the works uh, that we didn't talk about, but they're going to be huge and you guys are going to love it. Uh, Book is linked in the show notes as well as his Facebook group. You guys, please check him out. this show, you can find us at uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, at Twitter, and if you want to email the show directly, you can do so at expandingrealitypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and you know what? Y'all be good to each other. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.